Let's bow for a word of prayer and move into our study. Thank you, Lord, so much for today. Thank you that we can once again be approaching this topic of Bible study to see how we can best glean from your word. Lord, you've communicated in such a way as to be understood. The, the men that you used to write Scripture wrote with particular purposes in mind. They wrote with uh, particular structures in mind. And as we seek to dive into that and uh, discern and read and uh, analyze, I pray that you give us wisdom and guidance and then uh, guide our discussion here today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, inductive Bible study. We're moving through this step by step, and again, we're using this this book called Inductive Bible Study a little bit as a guide for us, as a lot of the content is just kind of summarized from the different chapters of that book. As we continue to move through this, we are looking at this broad strokes inductive method, observation, interpretation, and application, and we're still in the observation phase. We have not yet moved beyond that. That's where we're at right now. And within the observation phase, we've been looking at five steps along the way, and here we are today going to hit this last step, but we've compared our translations. We've sought to ask good questions of the text to try to get at the different things that we need to hone in on and focus in on. Uh, we're seeking to discern what are the significant terms within the text that would lead us to see, okay, the, the meaning of the passage is going to be bound up in very significant terms. Uh, we've been observing literary features, and now we're looking at determining literary units. What are the broad strokes units? What's the, what's the sections of Scripture? Because we never want to get to a place where we're just, you know, there's that phrase that's been used, never read a Bible verse. You want to read Bible verses. You want to read them within context. Because as we're going to talk through things today, yes, words have meaning, and we need to determine the meaning of those words, but they have meaning particularly within context. And so we want to examine the context. And well, we have to know where is that context? Where does the unit begin and end? How do we, how do we determine that? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today as it's uh, labeled there basic discourse analysis. You do have your handout in front of you. And there's a need for us to just zoom out just a little bit as we consider determining, determining literary units and doing this basic literary discourse. And I, I just have to say this, the concept of, of discourse analysis. I have taken several semesters of Greek, but it wasn't until we started diving into discourse analysis that a lot of things clicked for me. Now, things, different things click for different people at different levels of studying the original languages. For me, things really started clicking when they started digging into discourse analysis. We're not getting into Greek-level discourse analysis today. We're, we're going to keep things at a higher level, you know, using our English translations, because we can still do that even with our English texts. Uh, but we're going to look at some basic categories for uh, discourse analysis today as we look at literary units. As we consider individual words and the meanings of particular words, we've been looking again at the different things. Okay, we have to de determine what are the significant terms or phrases. Uh, we have to look at these different things on that level. But it's helpful for us to zoom out just a little bit. And I've got a couple of quotes from the book on your, page, on your uh, handouts here. An analytical reading of Scripture must consider structural form and function even beyond the sentence level as an integral aspect to the communication of meaning in Scripture. What that sentence is communicating is that 
the idea of the meaning of a passage, of a meaning of words, even of the meaning of a sentence itself can only make sense within its context, within its broader context. If we're just looking at individual words, we're not going to grasp the full meaning. Right? We can understand what an individual word means, but it's just an individual word on a page that's not that helpful until we get it within its context. So they both have to play together, right? So when you're looking at the broader context, there's going to be questions that are going to come up about individual words. You have to answer those questions. Well, as you're looking at individual words, you have to know how it fits into the broader context. So the two must inform each other. Letter B, it is necessary to observe Scripture analytically, noting the way in which thoughts are organized within the text as a lead into interpreting Scripture according to its appropriate context. As the original author was writing, he was writing with particular purposes in mind, and that is part of that purpose. You know, we, we use the, uh, the um, there's that saying, the medium is the message. You've heard that, right? Just the way something is communicated tells us something about the message itself. So we, th- there's all the different genres of Scripture and different things that we're going to get into as we move along, but all of that informs how we read Scripture. So I forgot to put the, those quotes up on the screen. It's important for us to embrace and to recognize this concept that we have to zoom out a little bit some, and uh, get the broader structure. So let's start talking about some of these things. We have this concepts of structure and genre. Of course, we know that not all Scripture is structured the same, Right? Just on the most basic level, even with our English translations, as we just open up the pages, you can see the format is different depending on what passage of Scripture you're in, right? Just, it's right there on the page. So what do you see? What's, what, just, just the format of the words on the page, what are the two things that we see when we open up Scripture? Talking about just, just how it's presented in the format on the page itself, not even at the words, just the page. There's, there are chapter and verses. Um, what, do you, what do you got? Sometimes you'll see things organized as uh, prose or poetry. Yes. So prose is usually put together in like the paragraph format where it's the block paragraphs. But then there are some times where there's poetry. And so you look at there's like the indentation of the lines and there are things that are like in verse, or like, like stanza format as it goes through. And so that on the most broadest level, we see the two different structures that way. There's poetry and there's prose. But as you even get into the details of the pose and the poetry, we realize that even not all poetry is organized the same. So within poetry... You have, there are, there's the broader structures, but then there's the substructures within those broader structures. So within poetry, if you look at the poetry within the book of Psalms, that's, uh, there's a whole bunch of different kinds even within the book of Psalms itself, but a lot of it is, is praising the Lord, a lot of it's structured a particular way. If you look at the poetry within wisdom literature, like in the book of Proverbs, that looks and reads and feels different from the book, the stuff that you would find in Psalms, and then if you go over to like the prophetic literature, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, I was just this example I was just in here, it was Jeremiah. Jeremiah's prophetic poetry reads very differently from the Psalms or the Proverbs. And so there's different styles, there's different ways that this poetry is, is even within the broader subcategory. 
Well, then you like yeah, you go to a book like Job, that yeah. we we often read it as narrative, right? But the whole almost the whole thing minus a few chapters is poetry. Yes, yeah. So it it there's lots of different kinds of subcategories within the broader categories. Even if you look at prose, well, there's the law, there's narrative. That's just, just storytelling, like actual narrative. And then you have epistolary literature. It's all prose, but it's different, right? There's different subcategories within, different substructures within the broader structures. So we see that not all Scripture is structured the same. Well, it's not, that's a lot of it's because it's not the same genre, right? We have different genres within Scripture. We do have law. We do have narrative. We do have prophecy and, and the different kinds of poetry and wisdom literature, etc. We have all these different things. But then, even within our genres, we have our subgenres within the larger genre. So if you open up the Gospels, well, the Gospel is narrative, right? Well, within the Gospels, we find parables and sermons and actual uh, narrative like you'd expect to find, but, but there's different kinds of subgenres even within the genres themselves. And so different texts even, so, yeah, so we have to ex- examine and we have to be able to recognize those different features, but we also see that even within different texts that are of the same genre and even subgenre, so if you were to compare the different gospels side by side, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're the same genre. Within those genres, there's the same subgenres that are found within the books themselves, and yet each book is structured differently. The way Matthew puts together his story, it's really organized and, and structured around the main sermons that Christ delivered, the main discourses of Christ. So we're looking within the book of Mark, it's structured differently. The book of Luke is structured differently. The book of John, it's all structured differently, even if some of the same genres and subgenres are found within the book. And so the organization of the Gospels, we need to pay attention to these things if we're discerning the literary units and the meaning that is being conveyed by the authors. You got a comment there? I was going to say, even in the Gospels, when you look in the same, the same subgenres that are there, even if they're you know, organized differently, even when you look at the same episodes that are recorded among the Gospels, yeah. each one is told differently. Right. Not, not contradictory, but you see different details are emphasized or de-emphasized depending on whatever the author's purpose is in recounting that, in, that episode. Yes. So you can have the same parable or the same miracles or the same you know, episode that is, you know, if you were to get like a harmony of the Gospels and open that up and you can see the difference, it's the exact same parable or it's the exact same um, miracle that's being performed, but based on the author's purpose in writing and how he's organized it within the broader structure of the book, he may have a slightly different emphasis or point with each, uh, with each episode. So that's, that's a reality that we have to pay attention to. So when we are looking at this, we're, we're trying to discern literary units. All these things have to be factors in our minds. We have to be looking for these things as we approach the Scripture so that we know how to bracket our text. So we're studying complete literary units for the purpose of getting the main thought, the main emphasis that's within that individual text. There are two goals for this kind of structural analysis, and the one we've already said we want to discern literary units. 
We just, we need to grasp that. It's important. Otherwise, you know, if you're studying a book, well, how do you know where to start and where to stop? Like, that, that's an important thing of, for when you're doing any kind of individual study. We also want to grasp the authorial intended vehicles for communicating meaning and a particular theological message. The author, when he was writing, had a meaning in mind. He's communicating a specific thing. He's communicating particular thoughts and ideas. He's communicating a particular theology. Well, the medium is the message, right? That's, that's, that's a concept. The way he's communicating and the structure that he's building into the text helps drive that message, drive that point, communicate his message, communicate the meaning that he is intending. And so by looking at doing this structural analysis and doing this discourse analysis and discerning these literary units, this is part of how we're going to help, it's going to help us grasp what the author originally intended. Exegesis is not just about individual words, but it's about how those words fit into the broader context. So the sentence level, the paragraph level, the literary unit level. So we want to be attentive to those things. There's a lot that we could get into when it comes to structural analysis. For our purposes here today, we are just going to look at some uh, four primary aspects of structural analysis, and we're going to dive into each of these a little bit deeper. There are boundary features. These are markers which help the reader determine where one unit in a larger text begins and ends. There are structural formulas, the way a text is intentionally constructed to portray the author's intended message. There's this concept of cohesion. These are the basic qualities which unify a literary unit. We're going to explain that more later on. And then there's the relationship. These are the connections within and between literary units. Is each, even though we, when we have identified a literary unit, it's, doesn't, it's not just a standalone thing, it's still within a broader context. So, how does that literary unit relate to the other literary units? So, let's start working through some of these concepts, and then we'll look at some examples along the way as well. Some of these are pretty self-evident as we look at boundary features, initial markers. Let's look up 2 Samuel verse 11 or chapter 11, verse 1. Initial markers are indicators that a new literary unit has begun, and a lot of times they are pretty self-evident. It's like, okay, yeah, that's right there, but it's helpful for us to identify them, making note of them so that we know we have a new literary unit. Whoops, I'm in 1 Samuel. I'm just at 2 Samuel. I was like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> All right, uh, Jim, would you read that for us? Grab the mic there. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, saint, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, but David remained at Jerusalem. So there are some... Uh, initial markers here, there's some boundary markers here that indicate for us that this is a new section. There's a time indicator in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. All right, so that's, that's one indicator. There are a whole host of indicators that would 
really take us too long to examine each and every kind. So there's lots of different examples listed on your sheet there, but sometimes it's time, sometimes it's a new setting, where there's like a different, kind of moving places, a different setting, sometimes new characters are introduced. So it's sometimes like in the Gospels, say, now there was a certain man who was named, you know, whatever, and it might go forth like that. There might be uh, introductory words, so let's, uh, for an epistle, let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Good morning, good morning. Jessica, I'm going to have you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, and you could read just the first sentence, you know, this... uh, Go, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, scroll on down to chapter 8, verse 1. Okay. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all, per, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So here we have, these, what are the, what's the initial marker there that indicates this is a new text? This now is concerning. now concerning. He's, he's introducing a new topic. There are times where it's very explicit. We're on page two, uh, looking at boundary markers, uh, initial markers. We're determining literary units. How do we know what sections to study? We never want to read a Bible verse. We want to read Bible verses within their context. Well, how do we know where a text begins and ends? Uh, so we're looking at, we're in boundary features, uh, initial markers. So there's different things like that that introduce a new topic, it introduces a new idea, it introduces a new concept. Sometimes it's, um, there are inferential conjunctions like, therefore, so we see this in places like uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, and he goes on to explain some application based on some of the theologies that has been previously been expounded. And so there's lots of different markers of that level that, that can help us see, oh, this is a new section. I need to be paying attention here to those kinds of introductory markers. There are also final markers that clearly close out a passage. This is an indication that the literary unit has come to a close. Sometimes this is a summation of the previous information that has been discussed. So, uh, Jim, are you opening up Second Kings there? Is that what you've got? Excellent. So 2 Kings 17, and this, now there's a lot of text there. I'm not going to ask you to read the whole thing, but a lot of it's going to be summary information that has been going on just summarizing the things that have been happening within the text, within the narrative there. Where would you like me to pick up on that? Uh, go ahead and start with verse 7, and then let me see how far down I want to see, get you to read. Um, go ahead and just read like the first two or three verses. Okay. Yeah. Second Kings seventeen seven, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that kings of Israel had practiced. 
So there we have, so what's happening is the narrator is kind of explaining some of the things that had gone on. The previous verses just explain that uh, that's, uh, there was a, um, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, carried the Israelites away to Assyria. There was the Assyrian captivity, and then he basically provides a summary account. How did we get to this place? Well, let's remember. This happened because, and then he goes and, ex- and kind of summarizes all the things that we have just read in the books of First and Second Kings up to that point about all the idolatry, all the wickedness, all the, the abandonment of the law of God. And he's summarizing everything up in this section. And that's kind of a marker for us that we've come to the end of a particular section. We've seen this at different points, even in our study throughout the book of Mark, where Mark kind of, he... There's a section of Jesus doing miracles and things, and then there's a summary text. And Jesus went out into the countryside and healed many people and was teaching lots of things. Like There's like that summary paragraph, and then it goes on to the next thing. That kind of is a marker for us. Ah, okay, this section has come to a close. We're going on to new themes in a new section. We just had that just a few weeks ago in our study of Mark. So there's different things like that that indicate that sections have come to a close. Uh, third is the concept of inclusio. An inclusio is a literary means to wrap a, a unit with parallel bookends, often by employing parallel phraseology or subject matter. Now, we have seen this all over the place in the book of Mark. In fact, the book of Mark employs inclusios within inclusios within inclusios. We are, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a... Well, it's, it's not as so much as an interject, interjection so much as it is he's, he's wrapping the literary unit together. So if you, he, by beginning, so let's, let's, let's have an example. Let's go to Mark. And I'm going to give you the broad level inclusio, and then maybe we'll look at a couple of closer inclusios. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Jim. Uh, we're going to mark 1-1. One, one. So go ahead. So, someone can read that for me. Uh, mark 1-1. One, one. All right, go ahead. Can you grab that mic, if you don't mind? Make sure the switch is on. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. So there's the beginning of the gospel, the Son of God. That's a key terminology right there. And then I'm going to flip us over to chapter 16, verse 36, where this is at the crucifixion of Christ, where you have the, the response of the centurion as he's looking up at Jesus Christ upon the cross. And it says this, 1639, And when the centurion who stood... Uh, 15, yes, sorry, 1539. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So there's a literary wrapping there where there's the Son of God introduced in 1-1, and then as we're coming towards the end of the book, the conclusion of the centurion, ah, this man was the Son of God. He's, he's kind of wrapping the literary unit in that way. But then within the book, 
So we see things like um, uh, multiple feedings. There's the feeding of the 5,000 in a couple weeks. We'll see the, or is that next week? Two weeks. We'll see the feeding of the three weeks because of Henry coming. Uh, we'll see the feeding of the 4,000. So we got two feedings of mass amounts of people. That's an inclusio where there's a literary unit going on there. We see uh, boat scenes. We see uh, uh, the storms, right? We see uh, Jesus interacting with his family in chapter 4, was it? Uh, so, or no, chapter 3, chapter 3. So we see these different inclusios where there's similar thematic material at the beginning and end of a section or similar phraseology and words used at the beginning and end of a section that are kind of wrapping things together within a literary unit. Uh, go this, ahead. This would seem, I mean, of the different boundary features when we're talking about discourse analysis, in, at least in my mind, this would seem to be the major argument in favor of an expository approach to Scripture because yeah. if you're just taking a topical approach or, you know, we're here today, next week we'll be there, even if we're in a textual unit, if you're not, if you're not taking the approach all the way through as the author intended, you're going to miss yeah. a whole lot. That's an excellent point. Uh, the process of expository preaching or just moving through a book chapter by chapter and verse by verse, that's how you're going to begin to pull out some of these concepts and things that you will miss if you are kind of studying more topically. So, yeah, that's an excellent point. So there are boundary features uh, that mark the beginning and the end and then even both uh, the, the inclusio concept that wraps a, a unit together. There are also some structural formulas. You know, we've talked about some of these concepts already in terms of determining things like important terminology and things like that as we move through. Uh, but there are different structural formulas that help us see, okay, if a word is used a lot in a section, that probably helps us recognize that this is part of the same unit together, that I shouldn't be breaking this up too much as I'm studying it. So repetition. A recurring word or phrase within a unit. We don't have time to look at all these passages that are on your sheet today. But if you were to open that up, you would see the similar terminology and similar language that's being used that help you see the thematic connections within that literary unit, within those sections. Parallelism. Corresponding thoughts or phrases. So if we were to open up the book of Jonah, for example, there's a there's parallel concept when we look at the way Jonah responds to the people of Nineveh, Nineveh and the way he responds to the plant. Within the literary structure there, there's an intentional parallelism within Jonah's responses, even if it is a contrasting parallelism between the two things. Okay, the way he responds to the people and the way he responds to the plant, similar but contrasting. There's the concept of chiasm. Chiasm is a thematic crisscrossing between adjacent lines of poetry. So let's, we're going to look up this one because this is helpful. Look up Isaiah chapter 6. You're there? Yep. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 10. And within this text there is a, a small level chiasm. They're not all, all chiasms are not always this contained. Um, but, in, but here they are. It is nice when they are. Go ahead and read it. Isaiah 6.10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, their, and blind their eyes, 
lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, I wish I had put together something on the screen to help us understand this concept of chiasm because sometimes it's helpful to see it visually. But there's, there's the, the chiasm. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to draw it on the paper here because I think it'll be that helpful. You've got lines of text, and the way the chiasm is focused, it's almost like a, I could have drawn these out further, but uh, there's almost like a, a triangle formulation. This is one form of a chiasm. There's different ways to do a chiasm, but you have the first line and the last line corresponded to each other, and then the next lines inside correspond to each other and then the inside set corresponds to each other. So within Isaiah, we have this. Make, their, make the heart of this people dull. Well, that corresponds down to lest they understand with their hearts. Understanding and the dullness are linked together. Make their ears heavy corresponds down to lest they hear with their ears. And then if you see, make, and blind their eyes corresponds with lest they see with their eyes. So you've got Dullness, ears, eyes, eyes, ears, and understanding, which corresponds with the dullness. That's a chiastic structure. It's a chiasm. There are different ways that, that chiasms can be organized and structured, but that's one prominent way where it's like it's an A, B, C, C, B, A pattern that way. We have seen it, yes. Yes. Yes, we did see that in Mark, and there's, there are some places um, where it's harder to discern a chiastic structure because it covers a larger literary section, uh, but it's something that we can look out for, and when we see it, it helps us get at, okay, what's, you know, what, what's, uh, what's the author's point here? What are they driving at? We can also see acrostics. This is a literary structure, a structural formula that kind of ties a text together. Uh, in an acrostic, there are different, there's some really famous ones. Psalm 119 is a very famous acrostic. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, and there are 22 groupings, and in our English translations, they group them usually into eight verses per grouping, and there's 22 of those within Psalm 119. Have you ever wondered why Psalm 19 is so long? <laughs> Well, that's why. You've got, you've got a, a stanza for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We see this in other psalms as well. We see this in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, if you were to open up, there's five chapters in Lamentations. Chapter 1 is 22 verses long. Each verse in the Hebrew language begins with a, a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 1 is that way, chapter 2 is that way, chapter 3, chapter 4. Chapter 5 breaks the pattern, which is actually, it's, it's significant when we're understanding the meaning of the text. So we have these acrostics that are built in that as we kind of move through those, that can, be, that can help us understand, okay, when we see an acrostic, we know we've got a larger literary unit here, right? I should be looking for the full literary unit or I should study each, like with Psalm 19, 119, I should study each letter 
you know, as a, as a subunit within the larger unit, right? I don't want to break up verses 1 and 8 because that is Aleph, right? I don't want to break that up. So that, that's one way that's helpful for us to see a literary unit when we can be clued in when there's acrostics. Sometimes we need extra resources to help us discern where those are, right? Because it's not, we, we don't have 22 letters in our English alphabet, and when it's translated in English, it's not translated with that acrostic pattern. So sometimes we need that, but when we discover that, we pay attention. Do we see any acrostics like that within the New Testament, or is that predominantly an Old Testament feature? I think it's predominantly an Old Testament feature. I'm trying to think. I'm not aware of acrostics on that level in the New Testament. What, I, what we see more often in the New Testament is stuff like alliteration. Uh, if you open up like the book of Hebrews, I think in the Greek, the first four or five words in the book of Hebrews all begin with the letter, the Greek letter P, pi, uh, P. So, um, I think we see more things like that. Uh, we see more alliterative type things than acrostics in the New Testament, because we also don't have as much poetry in the New Testament, right? So, the, mo the majority of the New Testament is narrative or epistolary. We've got some prophetic in the book of Revelation, and, but most of what's poetic in the New Testament is quotations of the Old Testament. So, there's not a lot by way. There is some. So, uh, there's a few places in the New Testament where it seems like it's been recorded like an early hymn. So, we see this uh, like in Philippians chapter 2, where it's talking about you have this attitude, which is uh, yours in Christ Jesus. He being in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's a lot of scholars that believe that that was an early hymn, just the way it's structured. And there's a couple of places in um, either First or Second Timothy that are kind of structured that way as well. They're not acrostic, but it's, it is poetic. So... Uh, as we continue on, we're trying to discern the, the literary structure, the literary units. One way that we can do that is by looking for cohesion. What is cohesion? It is the equality of a text that gives it unity. There are different things within it that can give it unity. The genre and the subgenre of the book, uh, there, can be un there can be some unity there. As you look at the classifications for different types of literature, which are based on similarities between form, style, and subject matter. We discern the genre and the subgenre. Especially looking at the subgenres within a book, we can d discern literary units within that book. The content of a section gives it cohesion. So similarity in subject matter, it unites a unit. A couple weeks ago, uh, we were looking at rep uh, repetitious terms in I think we looked up 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where we saw the theme of knowledge used over and over and over again. Well, the fact that Paul was hitting upon that term so often and that concept so often clues us in that there is there's similarity in subject matter here that's uniting this unit together. When we're looking at a narrative passage, the setting in which that passage is found can help bring cohesion to that passage to that section. 
when there's common elements related to time and space, our, our location, okay, all of these events are taking place at the same time in the same area, geographical area. This is probably one literary unit, right? So we can look at the setting. And we can look at common language, similarities in grammar and vocabulary that unite a unit together. So we look into the book of Ecclesiastes and we see all oh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he starts to expound upon these things. In different sections, uh, the author re- refers to the concept of time a lot. Well, in that section, there's, there's similarities in grammar and vocabulary that unites the section together. Oh, he's talking about time here. And there's another section where he really seems to have a hyperfixation on the concept of death. Well, how do we think about death? In the context of Ecclesiastes, well, it, it kind of it's united together by the concepts, and so we can look at these literary units grouped together based off of similarities in grammar and vocabulary that unite the unit together. And the last section is the relationship between literary units, within and between literary units, and there's different categories, and we'll look up a couple examples here. Um, Interchange. This is intentional contrast in comparison between narrative figures and events. So if we're reading the book of Joshua, and we see Rahab and Achan, two individuals that respond differently, and the narrative, the way the structure is is portraying it, it it compares and contrasts these two characters and how they respond to situations that go on. Saul and David. Two characters, both were kings in Israel, both were anointed by Samuel, both were chosen by God to lead their country, but they went very divergent paths in life, right? They are literary foils. So the interchange between David, uh, Samuel and David, or Saul, I said Samuel, Saul and David, there's significance there, right? And so there's, there's relationship between, within and between the literary units when we see these comparisons. Some of that is true in the New Testament as well with Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, inference, there's, when there's logical relationships between conjoined literary units. We're all going to look up some examples here. Let's look up Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Phil, would you be okay reading that? Yeah, there's, there's several examples of this that we could find uh, within, and, and a lot of times it's when Paul or other authors are moving from like a doctrinal explanation of something and then the practical application for what that means in life. So like in the book of Ephesians, sometimes the book of Ephesians is broken down in the calling of the church and then the conduct of the church. The first three chapters are about the theology of the calling of the church, well, then the chapters four and following is application of that theology to the life of the church, how we are to live ourselves, the conduct. Well, we see something similar in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Go ahead. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us. So we have this, what, what's the logical connector word there? Therefore. Therefore. That is, 
that, that does several things for us. First of all, if we were looking at this first section of initial markers, that initial, that's a, an initial marker indicating for us, hey, we're beginning a new section. But it's still related to the previous section, right? It's not a complete standalone unit. There's, there's an interplay there. There's a connection there. There's a logical relationship between this new unit that's beginning and the unit we just finished. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, well, what witnesses are we talking about here? Well, what just happened in chapter 11? It's the hall of faith, right? All these great men who live by faith, these great men and women of the faith. And so we have this, this, this interplay here between the two sections that, that we are keying in on. Okay, this is a new section, but there's still a relationship and a connection to the previous one. There's other places where we could look this up, but for the sake of time, we'll just kind of keep moving on because we're about out of time here. Actually, we're going over just a little bit. Uh, prominence. An emphasis on certain elements of the text. So, the, when there's something within the text where you are cleaning, being clued in on something, okay, uh, uh, Paul or the author, whoever it is, is really emphasizing a point here. He's really trying to drive something home. I'm going to look up Romans chapter 6, where Paul is going to, there's a certain phrase that's going to be used several times that, that really draws us in, like, oh, okay, this is something that's really significant here. Paul says, what shall we say then? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means! Exclamation point! Now in our English, there's an exclamation point. In the Greek, there's no exclamation point. However, the Greek does have a way of showing emphasis, and the way the English translators have brought that emphasis to bear is with the exclamation point. By no means, some translations render this differently, may it never be, or God forbid, this shall not happen, absolutely not. And then there's a rhetorical question that really drives the point home, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It just doesn't make sense. And we see this again, look at verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Again, really hammering that point home. Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say? That, that the law is sin? By no means. Exclamation point. So there's, Paul is really driving our attention into something. He's really trying to get us to, to, to really reckon with some concepts there. So a lot of times the text can bring prominence to a concept uh, through the way it's presented in the information there. Parenthetical commentary. Comments made by the narrator within a narrative text. So we actually just looked up a, a passage where there's an example of this in 2 Kings where the, the author there was providing a summary statement. So this functions as a, a marker for us for a boundary marker, but also there's parenthetical commentary here where he explains this happened because the people lived in this way. He's providing reasoning, he's providing explanation, he's providing a meta-comment, just explaining what's going on there. There's a comment made by the narrator jumping into the text. And then finally, the last uh, thing that we should be paying attention to is hinged statements or pivotal episodes, where it's just like, oh, this is, uh, my, one of my Bible college professors like to use the terminology, this is a watershed moment. I don't know where that phrase watershed moment comes from exactly. I don't know the history of that, uh, that phrase in our language, but 
that communicates that this is a very significant moment. There's a breaking point here, all right? It's things, things are going to go one way or the other, and it's based off of this hinge moment, this pivotal episode. So if we were to look up some of these texts, we would find that. So in 2 Samuel 11, that's David's uh, adultery with Bathsheba. It's a pivotal moment in the story. There's a significant thing going on there. In the book of Hebrews, there's a pivotal verse there where in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, where a, a concept is explained and then the, the rest of the next two chapters, chapter, or next three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, is almost just an explanation of that concept as it was introduced in Hebrews 8, verse 3. And so it's a very pivotal moment. It's a very crucial episode in the midst of things that, that really completely changes the direction of everything. When God speaks to Abraham and he says, I wanna, I'm going to call you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I'm going to send you into this promised land. That's a pivotal episode, right? Everything changes from that moment forward. There are these different points where there's a new section that's introduced, but it, it's, it's a hinge moment. It, everything that follows changes based off of what happens in that section in that event. So there's different things that we can look out for as we're looking for how do we break down, how do we discern literary sections, literary units, because we want to identify and study those units as a whole because that will help us understand the, the broader context of each passage as we go through. With that, I'm going to close this in prayer as we are over time. Lord, thank you so much for your word, how you've communicated. Thank you for the authors who wrote in such masterful ways, masterful storytellers, uh, brilliant uh, writers who compose these letters and these different documents. Lord, I pray that we would be attentive to your word, that we would look closely and be examining what your word has to say and, and the structure itself, because in, in that structure uh, can be communicated the message that you intend for us to grasp. I thank you and I praise you and I pray for your wisdom and guidance as we pursue this task of studying your word. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.